So we're going to uh, we're going to talk about how many saw the movie um, Trouble with a Curve. Anybody? Yes, Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Listen, that's just the result of the worship. I get that right, but right. Um, Trouble with a Curve was a was a Clint Eastwood uh, movie that was made. I don't know a few years ago, but uh, it was about baseball. Um, Clint Eastwood was a baseball scout. I think there's a couple of pictures. Uh, that we've got from the movie, but Clint Eastwood was a, thank you, TJ. <laughs> All right. Right. T, um, but Clint Eastwood was an old, old baseball scout. There he is. Um, and, uh, that's, that actress plays his daughter in the movie. Oh, hold on. I got to go back to setting my alarm. This stinks. Um, Anyway, the whole, the whole concept of the movie, the, the movie is about relationships between fathers and daughters. But in the movie, uh, Clint Eastwood, as a baseball scout, is sent to scout what uh, all the other baseball teams are collectively thinking this might be the best player in the draft. He might be the number one player. And Clint Eastwood determines that somewhere along the line he can't hit a curveball, right? And so eventually the movie culminates in a scene uh, in a major league stadium where she's brought a pitcher uh, that she believes is a much better talent than this young man. And uh, he's already been drafted number one because they disagreed with Clint Eastwood. Um, and at the end of the day, what they found out was he couldn't hit a curveball. And so there's the title of the movie. And I don't know how many of you ever played baseball or softball, but uh, hitting a curveball is a very difficult proposition, right? Uh, my son, Japheth, is... 27 now, and he's 6'6 and weighs 200 pounds. He's a grown, grown man. But when he was younger, he was about 5'6", 5'7", wore Dexter-looking glasses like he looked like Dexter the lab rat. He was just tiny and he was nerdy-looking, okay? But he wanted to play baseball, and so he played baseball. And he was, they called it Cub League Baseball back where where Japheth grew up. But ultimately, he transitioned because of his age into Pony League Baseball, which was, uh, which were kids between the ages of 14 and 16. Japheth came in as a 14-year-old. He was about 5'6". He was tiny. He had those glasses on. Um, and we had some 16-year-olds on our team. And one of the kids on our team was really good. I was coaching. I told the kid, listen, you're the best player in the league Act like it, right? Don't don't be so shy. We're practicing. So I'd had that conversation with him. Well, he's on the mound pitching, right? And my son comes up to the plate to bat. 14 years old, 5'6", wearing his glasses. Just, it, it, he looks out of place. So Kelby, the kid I talked to, was 16, a big, full-grown kid at 16 years old, rears back and throws a curveball. So, of course, if you've ever stood in the plate when a curveball is coming, if you're a right-handed batter, it looks like it's going to hit you the minute it starts coming, right? And so that's immediately what Japheth did. He saw the pitch. He thought it was going to hit him and immediately did the right thing. He turned away from the pitch but got curious in the process, I guess, and turned back around just in time to have the pitch hit him right in the face, right? Yeah. I felt like a great parent because I went out the time right before that and told him to man up the pitcher and he hit my son. So it, it ruined 
Japheth for baseball. He could he wouldn't he wouldn't play it, but he had he had the seams of the baseball in his face for the next two days. It was he was lucky he didn't have a, 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 a fracture, but it ruined him for baseball. Because when you play baseball, hitting a curveball is incredibly difficult. Okay? It's incredibly difficult. There's lots of articles and videos. I mean, I looked on the internet today, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of videos about how to hit a curveball. And basically nobody can agree how to do it. It made me think, because I was telling somebody a story this week about an incident where I'd given Charles a key to our property on the land so he could go there Sunday morning and get ready to play. He was leading worship. So I gave him my key. Well, about 7.30 on Sunday morning, I get a text from Charles. Um, you must have the wrong key, dude, because I can't get in, right? And I was just describing that to somebody, and I was explaining the, how terrible I felt about him, about it. And this person said to me, hey, you know what? It's okay. You know, it's a curveball. Everybody's got to learn to deal with him. And I was like, Phew, right? Like, that's exactly... That's exactly what I want to talk about, right? I found this picture on the internet. There's a little picture there of this four square thing. I, these things have become at least popular in my phone because this is what my son sends to me, right? You can read through it. In tough times, you have two options, get through it or give up. Okay, I give up, right? Wait, no, that's not what you're meant to do. No, no, I'm fine here, right? <clears throat> Christian, non-Christian, irrelevant, in this, life is hard, right? Nobody? Yeah, it's just difficult, right? And listen, we all do pretty well when life's a fastball, right? We all do really well when things are straight down the middle, right? No variance. We're all pretty good there, right? I don't know anybody that doesn't do pretty well when life seems to be true and straight. The problem is, how long does that last, right? I mean, there's not a person in here that doesn't understand the concept of life throwing you a curveball, right? I mean, some of you are some of you are in the middle of that right now. You're dealing with the reality that you woke up one day and everything was straight and true, and the next day you woke up and all of a sudden you had a curveball. And listen, the curveballs can be something simple. I, I I said this yesterday when I was in Palm Bay. I like to drink soda called Surge. Anybody else? Man, one person, right? Surge is the best soda in the world, right? Year, years ago, Surge came out. And listen, it, it, Surge is like Mountain Dew on, on drugs, okay? It's, matter of fact, it was so full of caffeine, the FDA banned it, right? Pulled it from the shelves. And when I was a restaurant manager, it had just come out and we were selling it. And honestly, I was drinking as much as we were selling, right? It came back and Burger King is the only place that sells it. And I, I found that out when I was out of town one day uh, at a conference somewhere. And I went through Burger King and right on, this, right on the, actually it was in Deland. I went to Burger King in Deland and right there on the, on the order screen in the drive-thru was a picture of Surge Soda. And it said, it's back. And I was like, I need a moment, right? Like, this is awesome. And of course, the Ormond Burger King closed. And so I found Burger King up at US 1 and 95. And I drove through it one day, and sure enough, they sold Surge Soda, my new favorite restaurant in the world. The problem is, that restaurant was the nastiest restaurant I've ever been to in my entire life. And I drove through that thing thinking, 
thinking every time when I drove through there, I don't know how this place is open. People were in there wearing their pajamas. And, and these were employees, okay? And I thought, this is, sure enough, sure enough, after I find it, I've, I've had three weeks of surge soda. My life is better. I'm happier. You know, it's all good. I drive up, drive up one night after service, one in a surge, drive up there, sign on the door. Sorry, closed, business closed, right? It was a curveball, right? Yeah, it was insignificant, uh, completely insignificant to all of you, right? It was, a, it was a curveball for me. You had to deal with it, right? I wanted to get out, throw a brick through the window and just, you know, but you got to deal with it. Listen, we all have little curveballs like that on a, on a day-to-day basis, right? But then there's other curveballs, you know, where your daughter comes home and tells you at 23 and single, she's pregnant, right? There's other curveballs where you're in the emergency room with your son and you find out your four-year-old granddaughter is diagnosed with leukemia, right? There's curveballs where you're at work and your boss calls you in at the end of the day and says, hey, we, we're going to have to let you go. We can't, we can't afford you anymore, right? I mean, we all know what life's curveballs are, right? You, you better than me can describe the curveballs that you deal with, right? And the reality is, is that much like hitting a curveball, dealing with the curveballs of life requires some special skill, right? I mean, just living life requires some special skill, right? I mean, it takes a little bit of special skills to survive the world that we live in, just in normal. I mean, I thought having... Children young was hard, and it was at some level. But it is nothing compared to having adult children, right? And the biggest complaint I get from my adult child is this, and I hate this, right? How they've turned a noun into a verb, right? But my adult children will say, man, adulting is hard, right? Adulting. They took adult and made it a verb. Geniuses, right? But adulting is hard. Like, my son will call me and he'll go, good. He's like, man. He goes, I had no idea that you had to go to the grocery store so often just to eat at your house, right? (laughs) He had to start mowing his own yard. He couldn't believe how quickly grass grew in the summer, right? (laughs) It's crazy, right? They get a job. and but, But the reality is it takes some skills. But, man, when you deal with diagnosis of life and death, you deal with the trauma of loss of somebody you love, you deal with uh, the loss of your livelihood and the potential loss of your home, you deal with the loss of your marriage or, or you deal with the loss of your relationship, um, this and whatever you deal with, the reality is, is, that, is that life, when it throws curveballs, changes the skill set you got to have to survive it, right? And that's that's the concept that we want to talk through over the next several weeks because we, and if you're a believer in here, if you're a believer online, can I hear you say amen? amen. Right? We, we have been endowed with a special gift of God called the Holy Spirit. So we have something different, right, in that process to live by. And yet the reality is, when I was younger, I was 22, 24, 25, and I was preaching. I was so critical 
of Christian people who refused, it seemed like in my mind, refused to show Jesus in any genuine way in their life. They just, they just, you couldn't see it. Now, when you saw them on Sunday, they were incredibly godly and incredibly participating and, oh, they love Jesus, but you would see them in life away from church and it was so different. And as a young guy who was preaching, man, I was so judgmental of those people, right? And as I've gotten older, here's what I've learned. There are a lot of people that come to church here, Every week. And watch online every week. That love Jesus. A lot of people. Right? Can I get an amen? amen? Right? We love Jesus. And yet so many people in this space and online find themselves living in the same cycle of life and it struggles over and over and over again. Right? And before I used to be judgmental and today I'm a lot more compassionate about it. Because the reality is it's stuff like this. Learning how to, how to not have trouble with life's curveballs where it really defines what Jesus really has done for you. Because for so many people, the only thing Jesus has done for them is give them a way to escape an eternal punishment in hell. And then they're frustrated about the life they have to live in Jesus because they hear preachers stand on stages and on podcasts and they talk about life change and how it can happen. And there's just not a lot of Christian people who have truly experienced that. And the reality is, you can really see, you can really see what kind of impact Jesus has made on you when life throws the curveballs? Because that's when you know whether or not you've actually made any transformation from who you are, right, to who God wants you to be. There was a, there was a little girl who was trying to go to bed one night and she couldn't sleep. And she kept crying and her mom kept telling her to go to sleep. And finally the daughter got up and she came into the living room where mom was sitting and she said, she said to her mom, she goes in tears, mommy, I can't sleep. And the daughter, the mom asked, well, honey, what is wrong with you? And she said, well, my stomach hurts. I have a stomach ache. And the mom said, well, you know what? Your stomach probably hurts because there's nothing in it. It's empty. So she took her into the kitchen and she got her a snack. And the daughter ate it. She quit crying and she went back to bed and she went to sleep. Following the following Sunday, that family had the pastor and his wife over for lunch. And as they were sitting at the table, the pastor's wife was talking about, you know, she's had a terrible headache, right? Her head, her head was hurting and she was asking about having a prayer for her headache. And the little daughter, the little daughter raised her hand. She said, well, she called her by name and she goes, you know, the reason your head hurts is because it's empty, right? We need to put something in it. I was going to tell that story about Joe, but I thought it'd be nice, right? And, and listen, the reason I told that is because here's the thing, right? So this is, the, this, is the, this is sort of where I want to spend a little time tonight before we move forward over the next few weeks and talk about this, right? Because listen, the Bible says in Corinthians, okay, 2 Corinthians 5, or first, yeah, 2 Corinthians 5, it talks about that... God's desire for us in Jesus is, be, is to become conformed into the image of Jesus. Can I get an amen? Jesus in you. Jesus in you is there so that the longer we live in this faith, the more like Jesus we look like, talk like, and act like. Can I get an amen? Right? And listen, there's no real way to know that till life throws you a curveball. Because listen, we know people who don't know Jesus that are doing really, really well 
when life is true and straight. Right? We know those people. Right? And there's a lot of people that come to church on a weekly basis and they're doing really, really, really well. Right? But how are you doing when life throws the curveballs? Right? What are you like when life does what life does in its broken condition and throws the curveball? That's when you and I know whether or not God's actually succeeding in changing us from ourselves into the likeness of Jesus. Can you get an amen? Can I get an amen? And, and so here's, here's what this is just, this is, this is me, right? This is what I've determined that I believe is the biggest struggling the biggest stumbling block we have to actually letting Jesus change us into him. And the, the joke illustrates that. And that is this, that we are people who are prisoners. We are people who are prisoners to our own narratives. Our own narratives. Let me give an example. My, my youngest daughter is 16 years old. She's going to be 17 in a month. And she does not have her own car, right? Which I could care less about, right? Every one of her friends has a car. They pick her up. She has a boyfriend. He picks her up. I don't care if she has a car. But I've told her, right? I've told her that come her birthday, right, we're going to help her get a car. Every time I say that to her, right? Every time I say that to her, what do you think she says? No, you're not. You're not getting me a car, right? I gave her my other daughter some money the other day and Cana's like, stop it. You can't give her money. You need to be keeping your money to save it for my car because I know you're not going to get me a car, right? You see, her narrative, her narrative, my 16-year-old daughter's narrative is this. He said he was going to get this, give me a car, but he's not going to give me a car, right? He hasn't, he hasn't even talked about it, right? He's not even bringing cars home for me to drive. He's not going to give me a car. So no matter what I say, her narrative has imprisoned her to this reality. I'm not getting a car, right? Happens all the time. Something goes wrong with somebody and they say, you know what? I expected that. Nothing ever goes right for me, right? The narrative, Right? People live imprisoned by their own story. And here's the power of a narrative. It's yours. It's based on how you grew up and where you lived and who raised you and what you went through, right? Your narrative is completely, listen, your narrative is completely unique to you. It is your individual footprint in this world because nobody else in this world has done life the way you've done it and where you've done it. And even if you grew up in a house with siblings, their imprint is different than yours because their narrative is different. Right? I grew up, I grew up with my brother sharing a bunk bed until we were 18 years old. And I can tell you, even in the same house with the same parents, the same bedroom, and the same stinking bed, we see life differently. Right? Because everybody's narrative is different. Right? My brother and I can, can, can easily talk about our father in a way that's positive. My two sisters can't. Right? Because their narrative is different. And here's the, here's the struggle. The power of that narrative often is the filter we use to deal with life curveball, 
right? It's way we see life. When things go poorly for us, if our narrative is, is that we had a terrible upbringing and things didn't go well for us, the first thing that we think is, well, that's par for the course. That's the way my life goes. Nothing ever goes good for me, right? Listen, narratives fuel political elections. You watch next year, right, as we begin to elect a president and watch people's narratives imprison them to a mindset in spite of facts. Oh, those stinking Republicans, they're all the same, right? I don't know why anybody would support a Democrat. They're crazy, right? Those narratives drive everything that we believe and do. I mean, we judged a race of people because they were black and white people's narratives forever was, well, you know what? They're black people. They're not worth anything. You see the power of a narrative? I mean, Adolf Hitler tried to wipe out a group of people because his narrative said they didn't belong. Right? Narratives can go to those extremes and they, they can be as simple as you can have a conversation with a person that you're in a relationship with and you can say, never going to get any better. They don't listen to me. Right? You sit down with your husband or your wife. You sit down with your child, your boyfriend or girlfriend and you have a conversation and you walk away and somebody says, well, how'd it go? And you're like, doesn't matter. They're never going to listen to me. Your narrative drives that, Right? Your narrative built on your experience and a built upon your personal imprint already has a predetermined outcome based on that. And listen, and here's the struggle with the narrative because it's your truth, right? Your narrative is your truth, right? Because your narrative is your truth. As long as life is filtered through it, you'll never get to the truth ever. You can't. Because as long as the only truth you produce is the one based on your narrative, you can't get to the truth of God's Word. You just can't. You have a subjective truth all the time. Right? And as long as your truth is subjective, you can't get to an objective response. And we're not saying, listen, I'm not saying that your story isn't full of factual data. Listen, my nephew came over to my house the other day. He's 27, 28 years old. I love him. He's my daughter, my sister's uh, oldest son. I love him. He's 6'6", played basketball. We were kinder spirits. We're just almost alike. But he's having a hard time figuring out how to talk to his mom. Because his mom and his dad split after so many years of marriage. And his mom, my sister, is riddled with guilt and shame. And so she's constantly frustrated because she doesn't see her kids enough. And he's just frustrated about how, how to talk to him. And so when he came over, I explained to him, you have no idea the filter that Melissa, my sister, produces everything through. Because here's her narrative. I said, I was raised with her. I can tell you what her narrative was full of. And after about a 30-minute conversation, he's like, I understand. And here's the problem. It's her narrative and her story that creates the filter based on her truth that allows her to respond to life's curse balls. The problem is this, church. Jesus came to change the filter. He came to change the narrative. And if our filter of our narrative never changes, our truth, our truth keeps us from the truth. We can't get there. We're never allowed to get there. Does that make sense to you? Right? And here's the thing. What I've learned now that I'm 56 years old is there's a lot of people who love Jesus that are entrapped, imprisoned by their own narrative. It's the only story they know to tell. And it's the only way they know to see the world. But they come to church. This is what's so frustrating. 
for you if this is you. You come to church and you just get you just get bombarded by God's word and what it says and how you should live. And then you leave and you're like, I don't know how to change my filter because my narrative is true. Right? I was abused. I was neglected. I was hurt. Right? I was black. I was rich. I was poor. Your narrative is based on factual data that creates your storyline. The problem is... Jesus' presence in you has to, at some point in time, change the filter so our responses, church, can look more like Jesus and less like me. Right? Isn't that the goal? My, my, my buddy in Oklahoma, I always go and talk to him. I always leave the church after I'm done with my sermon notes just so I can have somebody to talk through my sermon idea with. And so he's on speakerphone and I'm driving. And I don't know if I've told you this or not, but I tend to be a tad bit of an impatient driver. And I'm, and I'm highly, I'm, I'm not impatient because I speed. I'm impatient because people are stupid, right? And I'm convinced. I'm convinced that we're giving driver's license to people who have no business being behind a car. So today I'm driving and we get to a right, we're in a split lane. I'm in the right lane that turns right. There's no sign that says no turn on red. So if the light's red and you're in the right lane and no traffic's coming, you can what? You turn. So I'm three cars back and I'm sitting there and I'm talking to my buddy about the sermon and everything. And all of a sudden I see the car in front of, there's a car at the, at the light. There's another car and there's me and the guy in the right lane isn't turning. And I'm just in my head counting, 1,001, 1,002, uh, you know, because I'm thinking to myself, these are seconds I can't ever get back because this person is stupid, right? Here's what, here's what my buddy said. My buddy said, <laughs> so I, he says to me, just stop it, right? He said, just stop it. He goes, every time we talk on the phone, he said, you're going crazy because of drivers. He said, just stop it. No, oh, don't say yet to me, right? <laughs> so I hung up and told him I'd never call him again, right? But, but here's, here's, so my narrative in my head is, is that people are a lot worse drivers than me, right? And because of that narrative, like, listen, I had no idea what was going on in the car up in front of me. The person up there could have been having a problem, right? The person up there could have had a problem with their car. I didn't know if their car was still running or not. I had no idea it was going. Maybe that person was 85 years old and they were afraid to turn right. Maybe it was a brand new driver who didn't know the rules of the road. But my narrative said people are dumb when they get behind the car. And the only possible explanation for this person not turning right on red when it's legal is that they've got to be dumber than me, right? And here... And listen, you know that concept, right? That, so here's what I know. We pay so much attention to our own narratives when it comes to living life as a Christian as opposed to this. And then we wonder why being a Christian isn't any fun, why it's not enjoyable, why we can't get any traction. Listen, you and I are terrible likenesses of God Unless God through his spirit is reflected in us. It just won't work. 
But we can't get there if the narrative is the only thing that drives our conclusions. Now listen, there's nothing harder in the world to let it go. Let, let, I'm just going to read a passage of scripture here to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 3. You guys have got those on your notes. We're going to refer to this scripture several times in this series. Paul writing to... So Paul was a, a Jew, a Pharisee. If you're a hater of Christian, he's your guy, right? I mean, Paul went out and killed Christians. Like arrested them, brought them to trial, had them stoned. I mean, Paul hated Christian people. He was... He was at the top of the line of a Jewish zealot Pharisee. He was right up top. And then he came into contact with Jesus. And here's what Jesus said. I'm going to send you a bunch of pagans. I'm going to send you to, not Jews. I'm going to send you to pagans, right? Gentiles. And I'm going to ask you to preach the gospel to these pagans. Listen, if you've ever, anybody in here ever tried to change anybody's mind, right? Anybody ever tried to change your mind, right? How hard is that? Right? It's complicated. Paul's got to preach a whole new worldview to pagan people. And he tries to do so in the city of Corinth. An incredibly populous city, a well-to-do city, a port city. I mean, these people had built temples after temple to worship these false gods, these pagan gods, to worship these gods with prostitutes, to, off, to worship these gods with, with all kinds of offerings. Paul's got to preach the gospel in there. And he does. And guess what happens? People come to faith in Jesus Christ. And a church is planted in the city of Corinth. Now, when you go from pagan to Christian, it isn't an absolute 180 degree turn for most of us, right? Listen, when you go from the living in the world to coming to faith in Jesus, that conversion may be 100% real, but the actual application of it can be very difficult, Right? So here we got a church in one of the most pagan cities in the, in the known world, Corinth, and Paul has seen people give their life to Jesus and a church has started. Well, guess what? They struggled a little bit. They had some struggles. That's why Paul wrote the letter to them, right? They had some really big struggles, right? He eventually writes a second letter to them that we're not aware of and then eventually writes a third letter to them that we call 2 Corinthians. And in it, in verse 10, he writes these words. For though we live in the world, listen, that's common for every person, right? We all, Christian, non-Christian, right? We all have a common ground. We live in the world. And here's what we've determined about the world. It's a difficult place to live in. Can I get an amen? I mean, it's a difficult place to live in. I mean, I, we live in Ormond Beach for crying out loud. This is a small community. And somebody's at somebody's house in the middle of the night trying to slide a door open to, to kidnap a 13-year-old. Right? I mean, that makes the world a difficult place to live in. Would you agree? I mean, it's unbelievable to me how evil the world has become. Right? So Paul says this, though we live in this world, we don't wage war. Listen, this, this passage of scripture here for these three verses littered with military terminology. Military terminology used in the Greek. Right? He says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war. Right? Total Greek military word. Right? These people are in a battle. He said, even though this world is here and we're living in it, we're not waging war and fighting in it the way the world does. Right? Listen, Joe says every time there's a funeral, every time there's a funeral, he says this. Listen, you've got two choices. You can leave here tonight and you can get drunk to cope with this. Or you can make your way to God and find some understanding. 
Now those are two extremes and there's a lot of other things that happen in the middle, but his, his point is this. There's a way the world does things and there's a way that God says we should do things. Can I get an amen? Right? So he says this. We're living in the world, but as believers, church, we can't fight the world the way the world does. Right? We can't use the world's tactics. Right? Listen, you're going to watch the world's tactics on public display over the next year as we try to elect a president. You're going to watch the way the world does it. Lies and manipulation and corruption and false report and bullying, manipulation, coercion. You're going to see it all and it's all going to play out on ES or ESPN. Thank God it won't there, right? <laughs> right? Thank God that'll be kept from it, right? Well, hopefully it will, right? But it's going to play out on CNN and Fox and NBC and ABC and CBS and it's going to play out everywhere and it's going to be, it's going to be ugly. It's going to be gross. It's going to be, I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat, if you don't have the goal to say what it is, it's, it's just dirty and ugly on both sides. And we're going to have to watch it. And here's what you're going to know. That's the way the world wages war. You want something, this is how you fight. You lie, cheat, and steal. You manipulate, you bully, you coerce people. Here's what Paul said. God didn't put us in the world to fight the world that way. That's not why we're here, right? He says this in verse 4. The weapons... Right? The actual weapon of our warfare that we fight are not the weapons of the world. So lying, manipulating, right? Using coercion or bullying or greed or envy. Listen, we're not using those things. Right? And that, listen, just the fact that we can't use those things eliminates some of your narratives because your narrative produces that stuff. Right? So here's what he said. On the contrary, the opposite. The weapons that we have have divine power to demolish strongholds, right? To demolish a stronghold, right? To remove it, right? To take it out of the way. As a matter of fact, let me just look this up because I'm old and my memory isn't as good as it used to be, right? The word demolish, right? Like, so Michael, our campus pastor, came into the office right before uh, service here a little bit ago, and he was in Palm Bay today. And David, our campus pastor down there, has three kids, and two of them were at the church today. And the, the middle one is a boy, and the youngest one is a daughter. And David and Michael were meeting together down a hallway, and all of a sudden there was a blood-curdling scream. Just everybody come running out. That's how loud it was, right? And basically what they found out was David's middle, middle boy and his youngest daughter were in a scrap over a toy, Right? The middle boy had taken it. The little girl said it was hers. We had a fight, right? The Greek word for demolish is exactly what that little boy did. We, we take something for our own, right? The Greek word for, for demolish is this idea that we grab something for our own. Here's what he said. He said a stronghold. And listen, I don't need to paint you a picture of a stronghold. The Greek word actually means prison, right? Here's what he said. And you know this is true, whether you're watching online or whether you're here as a Christian or not. Here's what you know. Your narrative, your story drives the way in which you see the world, right? Listen, Catholicism has so much, so much power and so much claim over so many people in the world because what? It's a generational faith that's passed on and on and on and it's powerful, right? My family, my children are going to grow up Chicago Bear fans because I made sure I passed that down, 
right? And if any of my children fail, I will haunt them from heaven above, right? To ruin their lives, right? But here's what I know. A stronghold is in a prison, right? It's a prison that, that, here's what he said. The weapons that we have have the ability to take that stronghold and use it for our own purposes. Here's the thing about your narrative. Your narrative holds you in prison. For some of you, you've never, ever seen the world outside of the narrative that you've created from your life story. And you see everything that way. And here's the thing. There's nothing wrong with that until you indwell yourself with the Holy Spirit who gives you a new narrative. Right? We're more than conquerors. We're overcomers. We're kings and priests. We're holy. We're righteous. We're fixed and not broken. Right? We're eternal and not temporal. But our narrative, listen, our narrative is the stronghold. And the Bible says that because of the weapons we now possess, truth, right? And faith and love, these weapons that we have are narratives that have absolutely imprisoned us in our marriages and in our relationships, right? And in the way we see work and the way we see politics and the way we see anything, those prisons are what so many Christian people live in because they refuse, refuse to let God change them from one level of glory to another. And so what happens is Christian people deal with curveballs. Life throws them a curveball. And the next thing you know, we act just like our narrative tells us to instead of acting like God's narrative suggests we should. Does that make sense to you? Right? He says this. We demolish. Bring that verse 4 back up. We, on the contrary, we have divine power to destroy or demolish a stronghold. And here's, here's what your stronghold is made of. Verse 5. We demolish arguments. The Greek word for argument comes from the idea of uh, lego, which means word, right? And so an argument is another word for narrative. Argument simply means you've used a word to express your thought, right? And so here's what he said. Those, the, those arguments and every pretension that sets itself up. Listen, when you have a narrative, it sets up high walls. It sets up your stronghold, right? If you believe a certain thing, like if I believe, right? If I believe that Republicans are right and Democrats are wrong, or if I believe that Democrats are right and Republicans are, are wrong, guess what happens? I've erected a wall on my stronghold. And now... Now, because of that, I will speak my narrative, right? Well, how many, of those, how many of those walls have you put up over different topics, right? What do you think about money? And what do you think about politics? And what do you think about relationships? And what do you think about sex? And what do you think about alcohol? And what do you think about black people? And what do you think about terrorists? And what do you think? And guess what? You could cover a thousand topics. And here's what I know. By the time you're done, you've got a thousand wall fortress. And everything you do is filtered through that stronghold. The way you see the world, the way you see each other, the way you see your present, the way you see your past, the way you see your future, it's all through that. Well, I got hurt. I got hurt. I'm never, I'm never going to have a good relationship ever again. Right? The person I was with was, was worthless, lied, cheated. Right? Destroyed our life. Guess what? Now you got a stronghold. 
Or at least you got a wall for one. Unless, unless Jesus changes it. Right? It's not, listen, it's not that those things, if, if we're measuring by world standards, you're justified. Do you know how many people in church today won't forgive another person because their stronghold has been erected by their arguments in their head, their narrative, and they refuse? And here's the thing, if we're waging war the way the world does, they're probably right. But if you're waging war the way God says, you're definitely wrong, right? I mean, how many decisions do you think we make all the time based on those arguments? He says this, we demolish arguments and every pretension that self sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So here's the thing, your narrative is going to be diametrically opposed to God and what we know about him through the word. It's going to be, right? And he says this, and we take captive. Greek word is two words. It means spear and to grab a hold of. It got, it got translated prisoner. Because when you walk up to somebody and you put a spear in their face and you're waging war, boom, they've become your prisoner. So here's what he said. We take our thought, take captive every thought. Everybody here, everybody online, everybody say the word thought. Thought, right? If we aren't willing to take our thoughts captive, those thoughts become arguments, which become our narratives, which build our stronghold. And then everything in our life, everything in our life is filtered through that. Right? My sister Shauna and I, Shauna's three years younger than me. And uh, we've always been friends. When we became adults, we became best friends. She was my buddy. We did life together. She grew up loving the bears. We shared that in common. Our families did everything together. Our kids uh, grew up um, and were raised together. And I was fortunate that at a certain age, I got to uh, build a house in the country, uh, put a house in the country where I grew up. So my sister, for seven years while we lived there, got to come home. She'd come home for holidays. She'd come home for weekends. She absolutely loved it. She wanted to be at home. So she got to come home and, and was so grateful. And then God called me here. And when God called me here, I had to let go of the home place. And so I offered it to all my brothers, sisters, nobody could buy it. I told my mom about it. She's like, listen, I gave it to you. You do with it what you see fit. So I did. I sold it. I sold the acreage that we grew up on. I sold the house that we put there and I sold it. The night before I left, the night before I left, my sister Shauna came over and she said, I've never done this before, but I'm doing it now. She said, I'm asking you as your sister and best friend, please do not go. Pick me over God. Well, of course, you know, I, listen. At that point in time, it wasn't a hard decision to make. If she'd have shown up a month before, I'd have probably said yes, right? But by then I was, I was in. So I left for nine years. For nine years, we didn't talk. Didn't talk. She uh, imprisoned herself with her own narrative. And her narrative was that I didn't care about her. Her narrative was that I didn't care about family. Her narrative was that I was a liar because I said I'd never sell the property. Her narrative imprisoned her for nine years of not talking to her best friend. And at some point in time, I had to learn to live with that. And I did. It was hard. I was angry. But I had to live with it. And I did. A few months ago, I was sitting in my office and my sister Shauna called my cell phone. She's called my cell phone twice in the last nine years. One to tell me that my mom had died and one to tell me that my mom's sister was near death. 
So I saw the phone and I thought, it's going to be a bad day. Picked up the phone. I said, hey, Shauna. Next thing you know, she started talking. And she said, listen. She said, what's happened to us over the last nine years is 90, she said this, 99.3% my fault. (laughs) And she said, I'm learning that I can't just keep cutting people out of my life because they don't agree with them. And she offered me an apology. And she wanted to resume a relationship as brother and sister. And of course, I was more than glad to do so. Right? And so we've talked to each other since. I've been back to her home again for the first time in, in nine years. And we text on a regular basis. But here's what I know. That as long as life is lived behind the strongholds that we create through our own narratives, we're imprisoned and we're in bondage from the people and the things that matter the most. And so here's my hope over this series. My hope is is that you'll realize that Jesus didn't just set you free so that you could spend eternity in heaven. Jesus set you free from your narrative. Jesus set you free from the pain and the hurt and the neglect and the abuse. He set you free from your politics and your racism. He set you free from your struggle with alcohol or any other addiction. Here's what I know. Jesus has set you free from that. And the only way to truly live life in Jesus to the full is to allow your narrative, your narrative, which plays well in the world, to be changed. To have the strongholds tore down. To have your narrative not be the one that creates your truth. But it's God's word that creates a new filter and a new narrative so you can get to the truth. Does that make sense to you, church? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for... uh, Thank you for setting us free from those powerful, almost always negative narratives that we have. That helps us to understand that we are justified in our narratives based on this world's way of waging war. We're right. We're right. But in the kingdom of God, where we wage war differently, we can ever, ever get to right unless we're willing to let you destroy that argument to tear it down so that we can demolish the stronghold and use it for good and not for evil so i have no doubt listen i have no doubt god that in this room and and to those that are watching online i have no doubt that many people are imprisoned by their narrative it's the only way they know to see the world And yet they're frustrated in their relationship and their faith grows with you because they've been doing this for a long time and they can't seem to get anywhere. I pray, God, for surrender. I pray for surrender in these people. I pray for surrender in myself to let go of the narrative. I realize that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we're supposed to glorify you in our own lives. We can't do that, Lord, unless you redeem our old narrative. It's broken and busted and change it into something new.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.